Hey, podcast listeners, this is Charles Chandler. This week it's episode number 62 in our podcast series. It's part two of a two-part series on programming the work of the organization. And again, we talk about manual workers and knowledge workers and how to make them productive. This uh, episode was originally broadcast back in October 2016. Enjoy. Welcome to the Age of Organizational Effectiveness. This is the podcast that explores stories about organizations and their performance. I'm your host, Charles Chandler. Well, this week we're up to episode number 37, and we're calling this the second part of programming the organization. Last week we started uh, talking about programming the organization, primarily when you knew, both in manual work and in knowledge work, what the task was, or at least you could figure out what the task was based on the outcome that you were looking for. This week, we're going to talk about situations where you don't know what the solution is, and it's going to illustrate some things about programming the organization under uncertainty. So the first story comes to us from Monique Sternen, who gave a TED Talk in 2013, and it illustrates the principle of positive deviance looking for positive deviance in the environment. So Monica tells a story about going to Vietnam to work on problems with uh, child nutrition and child malnutrition, particularly in Vietnam. So when she arrived, uh, she was met by government officials. Um, They were highly skeptical about whether she would be able to solve the problem, and they were only going to give her six months. And if there was no positive results within six months, they would not renew her visa. So she and her husband went out to some of the pilot villages, and many of the children were malnourished. And so they decided, well, let's weigh all the children. So they trained some volunteers to weigh the children, and they did that fairly quickly. Then they said, well, are there some children that are not malnourished, but are doing well under this circumstance. And these were very poor villagers, very poor villages. Can we find children that are doing fine in this situation? And sure enough, they did find some children that were at normal weight and were doing fine. So they went out and they talked to the families where these children were found and asked them what they were doing, what they were doing differently in terms of feeding their children and other parts of the family routine. They found that these particular children that were doing well were being fed four times a day instead of two times a day, but they were being their food was being supplemented with shrimp and sweet potatoes that were actually available locally, although uh, most people didn't eat them. So this was positive deviance in the situation of the environment. And so they developed a feeding program that took this knowledge and expanded it to more children. And we're using the same approach that the families were using where the children were doing fine. So in a fairly short order, um, they were able to set up a program where they allowed malnourished families to practice 
the behaviors that the other families were using that had normal children. And they practiced this for some time until it became a habit and it became ingrained in their way of doing things. And sure enough, within the six months, a good bit of success was found and the visa was renewed and the, and the program went on. So this is an example of positive deviance in situations where you don't know the solution and yet you need to find a very low cost and timely solution to move forward where resources are quite limited. Uh, let me give you another example. This one comes to us from Cheryl Dahl, who um, is involved in a program that was trying to solve the question of global overfishing. And she started off as a researcher and a consultant, but eventually founded an entrepreneurial activity called The Future of Fish, in which she is an embedded ally in the system. And the system here is a complex human system with all of the normal complexity of the fish market, including the fishermen, the wholesalers, the restaurants, all of these sorts of things. So to get into it, she sent out anthropologists to look at the supply, tra- supply chain and how things were actually proceeding under the current system. What they found were many logical decisions that were being made uh, based upon self-interest, and simply the normal way of doing things. But the problem was that on the demand side, the restaurants and the patrons of the restaurants were asking for basically the same five fish all the time. Um, And, you know, these are the well-known names of desirable fish. But that's not really the way the environment works as far as the fisherman's catch goes. Many other different kinds of fish are available at different times of the year and from different locations. So there was a mismatch, basically, between the fish that were available and the fish that were being asked for in the restaurants. Um, And because of this mismatch, there was also a lot of mislabeling going on. Um, About one-third of seafood is said to be mislabeled, and in sushi restaurants, it's even much higher than that. So one example was blue, blue crab. Uh, blue crab was in Maryland, was coming in from Indonesia, uh, and was being sort of sold as Maryland blue crab. So they set up a chef training program that guaranteed the supply chain from the Maryland distributors that actually had the authentic blue crab and taught the, the chefs how to procure and to get it at the right time. So by being an, an embedded ally within the system, uh, the Future of Fish program was able to see the problems of supply and demand up close and personal and act as a, an, an agent to help sort out some of that. That program is still going on, but the benefit so far has been to change some of the behaviors of the system so that supply more readily meets demand. Let me give you another story from my own experience. Uh, This is when I was working in South Asia with the World Health Organization. We were involved during the water decade back in the 1980s. And one of the problems in Maldives was the lack of latrines that women felt comfortable in using. And so instead of using a tradition, simply an engineering design, Uh, We had sociologists and others involved in our effort 
we went out and got a small small groups of women and we co-created a design for latrines and the women um, working with the sociologist described the kind of experience they like to have by the seashore looking at the open sky early in the morning and so they designed latrines with four compartments that were open to the sky with a central well in the middle uh, where you could draw water for washing hands and for um, doing other things that would be needed. It was actually a great success. It went on to be replicated throughout the country, and it's the kind of co-creation that I think is another example of how to deal with a situation where you don't know the solution. So when it comes to programming the organization, today's examples would illustrate looking for positive deviance or being an embedded ally within the complex system, or co-creating a solution with the beneficiaries. These approaches would have applicability in government or in nonprofits or perhaps in businesses um, that were dealing with certain parts of the system. So that's what I want to leave you with today. This is part two of programming the organization. We're trying to chase down some loose ends, and that's the kind of rabbit hole I ended up down this week. So join us again next week when we'll again consider stories about organizations and their performance. I'm your host, Charles Chandler. Goodbye for now. 